Welcome to the Healthcare Hustle Podcast, a multimedia project intended to highlight the careers of leaders of color across the healthcare industry. Students, early professionals, and the community at large can expect to gain valuable, unapologetic insight on the career journeys of individuals whose lived experience and personal mission has been centered in advancing health equity. Thanks for listening. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Healthcare Hustle Podcast. Today, we are joined by Takesha Lovelace, Vice President and Chief Operating Officer at Affinia Healthcare. Takesha, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to have you, Takesha. Thank you so much. Uh, if you could, we'd like to start off with your journey through healthcare and, and through leadership. If you could share with us and the audience just a little bit about yourself, that would be great. Sure. Um, so my uh, initial um, segue into healthcare, I kind of started in a a different way than most. Uh, I didn't initially start within healthcare within my career. Uh, My career started within IT. Uh, I was, um, my first real job was uh, within the military. I was active duty Air Force. And my job was within uh, the IT field. And that is where I thought that I would uh, continue within, you know, my adult career. Uh, within my career. So um, I came out of the military, uh, discharged from the Air Force, and came here to St. Louis. Um, and I had my first job with, um, with AT&T downtown. And I worked in the network administration and um, project management. And that is where I felt that my career would just continue to grow from there. But um, I soon found that it was a little different in that uh, each year we would talk about rifts and job reductions, and that's just how it was within tech. But also keeping in mind too that this was the early 2000s, jobs were abundant within tech. So yeah, you would lose a job, but you could also you know find yourself in another large organization. But I just I didn't want to do that, and I think around 2009. Um, I just had my son the year prior, and I was one of those people that was laid off. And so they gave us, um, I believe they gave us uh, three to four months to either find a new position within the company or to look elsewhere. And um, so that's kind of what I did. I started out looking for other jobs within AT&T, but then things just weren't happening. It was so many different people with different within different groups who were um, being transitioned out. So the jobs were not abundant. So, and around that time too, was also a lot of, you know, chaos within, you know, just the world period. So uh, I talked to a, a career transition coach and they mentioned my military status, my veteran status, and how I could possibly look into uh, positions within the federal government. I'm like, okay, so that's a, something. Um, my parents have really kind of instilled in us a sense of finding a career that had longevity and stability. So I didn't really take their same path, but that that foundation was already set. Longevity and stability. So what career fields could I go into that, you know, I did not foresee going away, and that was healthcare. So I started looking within uh, the VA. So found a template on how to put together a federal resume, which was you know, a little different than your typical resume and start applying. 
Um, what can I do? I had no experience within healthcare at all, but I did have skills and I did know what I was good at. So try to parlay, you know, how can I transition and parlay some of these skill sets that I have within IT that could transition over into healthcare. I knew I was a problem solver. I enjoy problem solving complex issues. I could learn quickly. Um, you know, so different er elements that I was able to put into the resume projects, et cetera, that I've done within the military and also within my work within AT&T. And I waited. Um, two, three months went by, didn't realize it took so long to get into the federal government, but it does. And in talking to other people in hindsight, that was a pretty quick transition, honestly. And so two or three months went by, I received um, notification that they wanted to interview me at Jefferson Barracks. Uh, in the uh, the pain clinic. Um, so went in, uh, did my interview, uh, thought I did well, uh, couldn't really answer some of the questions, but I, you know, let them know that this is what I was looking at. I wanted to transition out of this particular field into healthcare. I'm willing to work. I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to do what needed to be done. And I was hired um, as a um, uh, program manager uh, within uh, the pain center. Well, now it's the pain center of excellence, but then it was just the pain clinic underneath uh, the spinal cord injury service. And um, so spinal cord is a large injury, a large um, uh, unit within the VA. Um, they had a subset uh, for pain uh, where um, our veteran patients would come in who um, were prescribed opioids and we had different programs set in place for them. Uh, to either, you know, kind of wean them off of the opioids or give them an alternative around um, other things that they could use for pain. Like, you know, we had chiropractic, we had uh, physical therapy, uh, we had pain psychologists, and it was really kind of an upstart. And so that was where my foundation started within healthcare. And that was, that began, um, you know, the, the work in terms of where my career started. Um, so learned everything from scratch there. Uh, I, I really appreciate how they saw something in me and we were able to kind of build from there. I knew nothing about accreditation sources like with CARF. You know, I just went to um, Chicago and, and learned about that and how, you know, what needs to be done in order to, uh, the goal was to be the first CARF accredited pain clinic within the VA system. And we were able to accomplish that. So, um, you know, just really learning and growing and, and making certain that um, the things that I did not know because I was the only non-clinical person on the team that I did find out the information. And so that was part of, you know, part of the virtues that I have was again, being a self-starter, being learned quickly, being able to find information for myself. Um, and so those were my strengths and I was able to really, um, really thrive within that environment. So that's kind of where I started um, and just kind of progressed from there. Wow. I, um, number one, just thank you uh, for sharing um, just your origins. And uh, I get energized because, you know, oftentimes these conversations are motivating and inspirational for us. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just amazing. And we're going to get into it because you've had a vast amount of experience, I feel like, <laughs> in the healthcare industry yeah. Yeah. since you started um, in so many different settings. But I think, uh, to my knowledge, you may be the first guest that we've had that has served. Um, Okay. in particular. So can you just, you know, kind of going back to your time in the Air Force, 
Um, could you kind of speak to maybe how that, you know, kind of shaped maybe your style or some of the, as a leader and just some of the experiences that you took from that? And was, did that make the transition into the VA a little bit easier because you were more knowledgeable about some of the things that were going on? Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. So as far as that time within uh, the VA, well, I started in terms of just some of the things that I took from uh, my time while in military service. So, you know, just I think that time within my life were part of my formative years um, within my 20s, really coming out of uh, school and not really having a full idea of what I wanted to do um, in terms of my life. But I knew I wanted to learn something new, which was within IT, and I wanted to travel. And I did that. <laughs> and I wanted to see the world. And I wanted to just, I, it was just different things that I wanted within my life. And I was able to accomplish those things. Um, so those were some formative years for me and, and really kind of shaped who I am to the core. Um, so for, for one thing, it, it, the, that my military service gave me a sense of what the importance of grit is. So to have passion and perseverance in the midst of adversity. So I, you know, I was born and raised in Nashville. So being outside of the familiar across the world by myself, sometimes, you know, going here, there, everywhere that they told me to go, learning a new job, all within, you know, your career, of course, but learning something new each place that you went. And sometimes without a lot of instructions. So navigating on my own outside of the familiar. Sometimes I didn't hear from my family for a very long while. Um, going into places that were um, just really unknown to me, unknown to my group. You know, we all were kind of in the same situation where we were just kind of out there just winging it. So being able to, you know, understand what the importance of grit and to have a mission in place and to know that there is a mission, this is what we're asking you to do, figure out how to do it. And yes, it's hard. And yes, you're kind of lonely at times um, for the familiar, but you know, you have to do what you got to do. And so just having that mental toughness, I think um, kind of really shaped me. I didn't have that before, I don't think. Um, also another thing, uh, integrity. So uh, I remember being in basic training and they talked about integrity. That is something that, you know, probably a lot of people knew, but it had never been brought to me in such a way that it really moved me. It was, he mentioned, this was my uh, training instructor, he mentioned, you know, what is it when you uh, do the right thing, even when no one is looking. And a lot of people, and you notice that a lot of people, they do things for show. They do things because people are looking so they can, you know, get the, the accolades or what have you. And it's not really real in terms of who they are. And I, that stuck with me. Like it stuck with me in a major way. And I still take that with me now. I try to give it to my kids. Like you have to do the right thing, <clears throat> do the right thing. Even when no one is going to give you a pat on the back, even when no one is going to be looking at you, even if no one is going to give you um, the kudos and the accolades, because that's just what you're supposed to do. It's just what you're supposed to do. And I think the other thing, and I, I, most people see that military, they, they, it's synonymous with the military, but it's discipline. 
And in this case, it's self-discipline. And so in, in taking even further, self-discipline in the professional setting. So learning, growing, moving from each duty station to duty station and learning different roles. It took a lot of self-discipline to be working, to work independently, communicating with various levels of leadership, completing assignments on time and doing it well. Um, and that requires time, energy, and attention, having pride in your work, getting the work done without procrastination and not needing a lot of oversight. And I think some people are still missing that. Um, I don't need a lot of handholding. And I think that that is what came from that experience in the military. Now, bringing that to the VA, it was very comfortable for me because my direct uh, leadership, he, um, he also spent a lot of time within um, the active duty, but at that point, um, he was a physician uh, within um, the reserves. So he still had that military mindset. And I think we matched so well because of those things. He knew that I could get the work done, that I did need little instruction, that he could give me, you know, a, a project to do, and I will figure out how to do it, that I didn't have to be watched over that, just different elements that I was able to take from that experience. And I also believe, too, that they probably, um, probably hired me because of that also, not totally, but just because of the could relate to that experience. And one thing I was, I was very surprised about, and you would think that within the VA, there were a lot of people who, um, who had a military background, but the people that I worked with <clears throat> did it not. Yeah. So that was surprising for me. And so that in a good way, because that means that you want to service these veterans on your own, not because of how, you know, you relate to it, you know, um, that this is something that you're drawn to on, you know, on a um, foundational basis. Uh, for me, I, I thought it was a great thing because I'm able to provide services that I, as a veteran, could also utilize. So that would make me want to give them the highest quality of service because I'm, you know, could possibly partake in these uh, services and resources as well. Wow, uh, I'm not. I'm not gonna lie. That was a lot of a lot of gems. <laughs> Honestly, seriously, because for me, you know, it's really good to cover those foundations, those those mm -hmm. values, those principles that really kind of guide us as we go through those adverse situations in the workplace. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I really appreciate that. I think our, our listeners are gonna be able to take away a lot from that. Um, and, and, and earlier, I think during your journey, one thing really kind of stood out to me. I made a note of which was that mm -hmm. you were the only non clinician on your team initially. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of us feel that same um, that same perspective on things. Yeah. Um, and so I would really like to hear how that kind of factored into your or how you kind of your your experience, I guess, in community health, uh, working maybe with non-traditional um, providers like doulas or community health workers, how that has uh, um, helped you as a COO or how you use that knowledge um, to, to your advantage. Yeah. So, you know, just in my role in community health. So uh, being non-clinical and just understanding the work that needed to go forward within the various communities. Um, you know, just when I think about the population that we targeted, um, it was it was large for us because this was our this was our whole world. Like community health, this is what we focused on, those who were 
uh, marginalized, the vulnerable. But in the grand scheme of the overall health system, it's very small, right? As far as the overall health system within Mercy, this group of patients, I say about 10%. Um, so being able to take um, the information that I had from previous roles and knowing that like community health workers, I didn't really work with doulas as much, um, but mostly within our community health worker space, just knowing the impact that they could have and how we could expand on their use. Um, I think that was important and we really, really keyed in and honed in on those particular roles and tried to give them additional um, uh, headway and leeway to kind of you know widen the space for them to go into the clinic space and be able to take additional time with those patients you know, outside of the 15 minute increments that they have for their, you know, appointment slots and whatnot, there are many different needs that uh, could be met by those community health workers. Tra uh, transportation issues, why is the patient not showing up for their appointment? Are they having transportation issues? Are they, do they have transportation or is the transportation late? Can we figure out a different way? Food issues, um, all of those social determinants that sometimes get in the way a lot of times get in the way of their overall health care, can't get to the appointment, can't get to the appointment on time. Um, and then we look at those no-show rates, what does that mean? And I learned that too in the VA. We had huge no-show rates, like really, really bad. Um, and when you really drill down the reason why, and I know I'm kind of skipping a little bit because I'm going back and forth, because as you mentioned, I had different experiences. <laughs> I moved around, but um, when we really drilled down on the reasons why, those were the reasons. They were transient, um, you know, uh, transportation issues, just uh, caregiver issues, uh, child care issues, like so many things. And if we had known more about the community health worker space and role then, I think we probably could have helped more, um, more of our veterans come in and be able to get assistance within our uh, pain services because um, because those those patients that were referred to us they were they could not be helped by their primary care physician they were we were a specialty so they wanted their primary care wanted us to help them to either get off the opioids or to find a better way to you know kind of address their pain needs this is, this is chronic pain this was pain that was not going away this was pain they want to live with for the remainder of their life. And so we had to, you know, determine uh, some different alternatives uh, to be able to have them to live with this pain. And that's a hard pill to swallow when you think about it, you know, just having pain for the rest of your life. Like we typically can't even fathom that, but this is their reality. So, um, you know, they're going through a lot of different things uh, even to just get in, the, in our doors. So how can we help them to be able to access our services? Wow. You know, I feel a little ignorant, honestly, um, listening to you because there's so many things about veterans health that I never mm -hmm. really thought about or really looked into. Sorry, I'm um, like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you're all good. I don't move around. <laughs> um, but I never really thought about it. So I'm like, oh, man, this we could have a whole conversation uh, based on yes. that. But yes. I, I do want to kind of get a little bit more specific on just all of the experience that you had. 
Um, and I feel like, you know, through your career experience, maybe you have covered every aspect of healthcare from community-based organizations. You've been a part of academic medical centers. Um, you know, you've been, you know, on in different just sectors that have done different things. And now, you know, you're at Affinia. What are some of the experiences or what setting did you feel like you enjoyed the most or you maybe learned the most? And on top of that, at what point did you start to kind of look for the C-suite positions and say, you know, okay, I'm ready to make a bigger jump in leadership? Okay, so that's a three-part question. So the, the first part, um, which one did I enjoy the most? I think the one that I enjoyed the most, that is, I would say that would be my work within community health, my previous role. I love my role. I could stay there for 20 years, honestly, because there's so much that could be done and it's ever evolving. Um, and I love my my leadership, um, my, you know, my coworkers and whatnot. We were just constantly growing and just the work within <clears throat> community health. I learned so much, so much that I did not know. Um, and, and I learned something new every single day. But the thing, but the role that I think had the most impact on my career and who I am professionally is in practice management. And so that was the first time that I worked at Mercy. Because <laughs> I came back the second time and worked in community health. But, um, you know, that was the job that I moved from the VA to because, and I wanted to stay within the VA. I did. Um, but as with federal positions, VA in particular, if you were not able to move or, you know, transition to another city or state, to another VA, um, sometimes you don't have that opportunity to kind of move into different GS levels. Uh, I had small children. My husband and I could not make that move. We could not move to another city or state for my job um, and just kind of uproot. So I said, you know, where am I? What are the gaps in my body of work that I need to fill? And certain things will keep coming up in interviews. Um, you know, and so I said, you know, how can I address these things? And that's, again, part of the mindset of, you know, the military, I, how can I fill these gaps? Where can I get this information from in order to make myself a more rounded and complete resume, a body of experience? And so that's when I wound up working at, at Mercy in practice management. And when I say that that was trial by fire, listen, I learned everything. And, and, and a lot of people don't get that experience because they're not in the clinics, but I was able to see firsthand patients coming in. This was internal medicine, so your primary care doctors. You know, you're coming in for everything, you know, from strep to, you know, my foot hurt, you know, whatever. So 15-minute appointments, making, you know, physician schedules, seeing that if you, if, if a patient is late coming in early in the morning, it throws the whole day you know, getting those text messages in the morning. I'm not going to be able to come in. Okay, who's going to work front office? Who's going to work back office? You know, no show race. I learned metrics. I learned quality. I learned patient complaints, personnel issues every day. <laughs> and it was, you know, for a while, you know, it was 
in the beginning, it was hard because I'm coming from the VA setting. And after a while, I worked there for so long, I could do with my eyes closed. But, um, you know, it was time for a change too. And that was definitely a change because I did not know a lot and I was learning. And eventually I was, you know, I was doing my thing. I had very, very, um, I'm not going to say demanding, but my physicians in my practices, they wanted things a certain way. And so a lot of people thought that they were very um, challenging, but I just felt like, okay, they, they want their schedule. They want their practices to be a certain way. Again, from the military, I've seen and heard worse. Okay, so these doctors, I mean, okay, that meant nothing to me. I'm going to take care of it. Don't worry about it, you know, and I'm going to make sure that this practice runs smooth. And I had various locations and it's hard being in one, you know, different places at one time and knowing that you have certain, you know, locations that need you more than others. Um, but receiving that experience firsthand was instrumental in who I am as a professional. I can get along with anybody. I can take on any challenge any personnel complaints, any patient complaint, <laughs> um, thinking, oh, I'd be going into to the job and, and just thinking, okay, how am I going to shift the schedule around? Who's going to work this? Are we gonna, I need to cross train you to work this. I need you to do this. You know, just coming in the door, just thinking, just strategizing, just figuring out how we're going to get things to run smoothly today on all of my locations. And so, that was able, uh, that role was able to allow me to fill those gaps that I would have never ever touched or encountered within my role within the VA. And I think it's important to, you know, to realize that, you know, sometimes you do have to leave and go different places. I mean, people can get comfortable and um, that can sometimes turn into complacency, I think. Um, but I'm not one of those people. So, you know, I, I saw that there was some areas that I needed to address and so that was, I honestly, it wasn't my doing. It wasn't my intention. I thought this was just a good role to, to go into, um, but it filled all of those gaps um, that I needed to have filled. So um, I grew by leaps and bounds, honestly, just the long and short of it. Uh, don't regret working there at that time at all. Knew that I could not stay there, you know, um, because that's not where I wanted to be. But I knew then at that point that I wanted to go into operations. I wanted to extend into operations and I wanted to, you know, uh, level up in, in terms of my career that I could do it. I didn't know how, um, but I knew that there were, um, that somehow it was, something was going to come across. And, you know, with my career, you know, whenever something happened, I'll try to push press and, you know, make something happen just doesn't work out right. So, you know, I think that I've been blessed to be able to just kind of let things fall into the next role, the next role. And they really have been great for me in terms of, you know, my experience and, and just, um, just filling the, the gaps of where I needed to go in terms of my career. And I kind of found myself here and I, it hasn't been a, a, a hard transition. Of course, I'm still learning, right? I'm, I'm going on three months now. So I'm not saying I know everything, but I think that everything that I had to go through um, led me to this point is what I'm saying. 
just just thank you so much and just to follow up on that i love number one just the different perspectives because we actually recently had you know an executive that was on a show that had stayed at their organization their entire career right and so i think yeah, you mentioned that happens with some people and it, and it does but i think you mentioned a lot of good things particularly you know for folks like brandon and i as young professionals you know sometimes we kind of the first entry level position we're already thinking about you know what we're yeah. going to be doing right before retirement right yeah. um and so just a quick follow-up were you strategic kind of in the amount of time that you were going to spend at each organization till it got you to a certain point or did you kind of have like a okay I'm going to go here I'm going to accomplish this I'm going to learn this and then it's going to be time for me to move on did you know that as you were moving up the career ladder you know initially no um because uh, I was at the VA for seven years I was when I say comfortable I was comfortable and honestly I probably could still be there now if I was able to get to the next level of what I was, you know, interviewing for, um, because it was it was great for me. Uh, I knew everything. I knew everybody, um, and I had no issues. But I think uh, after talking to various mentors and you know going to different networking events and just hearing different people, and they were saying that you know you should not stay uh, within your same role within X amount of years. And I was looking at my, you know, just the time that I've been there, I'm like, I can see that. I can see how people are, you know, strategic and, and intentional about how long they plan to be somewhere. Um, so, you know, from that point, you know, working in, you know, the, in the practices, I was like, you know, I'm going to give this X amount of time uh, to really get what I need out of this role. And I think that's kind of where my attitude was going forward. I will say this though, um, my previous role at, at Mercy in Community Health, I just felt like I could honestly retire there. I love that job, but this role was a dream role for me. This is what I wanted. When you say you write down your, you know, your aspirations and I learned this in um, SLBDI. St. Louis Business Diversity Initiative. And they was talking about your, you know, board of, your personal board of directors and where you foresee yourself. This is the role that I wanted. I wanted to be in a C-suite role, in community health, in, you know, possibly an FQHC. At that time, I wasn't even, you know, like I want to be amongst my community. I want to see an impact. And I was blessed to be able to be afforded that opportunity now. I'm nowhere near ready to retire, okay? That's kind of where I saw myself later down the line. And it's funny how you can say, well, this is where I want to be. Like you said, you know, what am I, what's leading up to the, the role before I retire? I'm not ready to retire, so I don't even know what's next. Like, I don't even, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm here, I'm loving it, and I'm just willing to learn and grow. And honestly, when people ask, okay, so what's next? I don't even know. I just got here. <laughs> So, um, so to answer your question, yes, after I wound up um, uh, transitioning from my, my job at the VA, I was a little, you know, a strategic in terms of how long I stay. Um, considering too, and I'm just going to be a little honest, I felt as if I came in a little later in the game than other professionals because of my time within the military. 
So a lot of people just started right out of college. You know, I did not. I had a military career and a whole other separate career in another industry. So I'm like, I'm behind a ball. Like I'm like, I don't, you know, people are younger than me are, you know, doing these things and, you know, excelling and, you know, I'm trying to make up for lost time. Um, but uh, I have to look at everybody's individual journey as well. Like you, I look at someone else's role. I can't get to that same role in that same path. I can't. Everybody has their own path and there's no one way to get there. And I learned that as well. Um, Cause I can't mimic your steps. I gotta make my own steps. And that's just how things have happened for me thus far. Um, it hasn't been the typical, it has not been the typical way at all. So I'm sure you can see that from my resume, but it all works. It all works together. So. Thank you so much, Takesha, for that. Um, it, you you really are kind of, you know, just blessing the audience with a lot of gems. Um, and, and one of the things that kind of stood out to me um, was in regards to, like, how you address those knowledge gaps and how you kind of, you know, took it upon yourself to to, to just go through that crucible um, mm -hmm. and just kind of just take it on. Didn't know what you were doing, but you still said to yourself, I'm going to make it work anyways. And, right. you know, and 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 I'm sure that your, your your time with the Air Force really helped you as far as dealing with that adversity piece and and, and just kind of being able to maneuver well. And um, I, one of the things I do like to take advantage of is is, is you are a, seriously a wealth of knowledge, right? So you have a lot mm -hmm. of expertise under your belt. And I think in regards to primary care, you said you were kind of working with a lot of the internal medicine uh, um, uh, physicians. Mm -hmm. And so I, I guess as you see it, can you kind of talk to us and, and our listeners about what the primary care space mm -hmm looks like or what that exactly is or entails what it looks like now or what it is going towards i would love to hear both honestly if we could talk about maybe what, what happened in previous times and what we're kind of moving towards moving in, in the future mm -hmm. so you know just from my um frame of reference or my experience what it looked like before um was more physician centric it's centered around the needs of the physician. Um, you know, in terms of scheduling, you know, 15 minute slides, I'll go back to that. That's not really um, helpful to a patient who has a lot of different needs that they are coming in for. Um, and they have to kind of narrow down. So after the MA comes in and does everything they need to do and reconcile your your uh, medications and ask you, you know, exactly what you're here for. How much time do you have left really to speak to your doctor about this one issue that you got to get out because you can't get two or three things out, um, you know, and if you're late, then, you know, get it, you know, if you have, you know, a late, um, a late show policy or whatnot, if you are after a certain amount of time, you may not even get a chance to even see your doctor because of this policy in place. Um, or if you do, they'll get you in, but you have very limited time. So basically what I'm saying is, is more physician-centered. What I do foresee, and I, here at Affinia, um, we are um, within the, the primary care space is addressing the needs of more, um, being more patient-centered. So addressing the needs of special patient populations like our LGBTQ plus community, immigrant and refugee communities, senior and elderly patients. You know, these are patients that are sometimes kind of um, 
not really addressed. They have special needs. Sometimes, um, you know, we talk about our, our immigrant patients. There are a lot of different needs that they have when they come to this country, plus the language barrier. You know, what does that look like? Do we have interpretive services for them to be able to, um, you know, state what's going what's going on with them? You know, do they feel comfortable? You're already in a new place. So, you know, you have health needs, you have social needs. How can we address those needs? So that is what I see us going more towards. And those are the things that we are here at our organization <clears throat> addressing because that's kind of the future state of healthcare. You know, the, the various, um, the various um, uh, uh, patient populations, you know, we talk about underrepresented. I think they qualify as underrepresented. Uh, our Medicare patients, again, you know, senior and elderly, and it's a lot of seniors that are aging in place, and they still need assistance because they are getting older and they're living alone and they're living in their home outside of facilities. Um, so addressing the needs that they have in order to extend the, their long life with longevity and, and vibrancy and making certain they have um, the resources that they need in order to be able to continue uh, to age in place. Um, addressing uh, the needs of our uh, nursing shortage. <laughs> you know, what's happening with this? You know, we're not getting having enough nurses coming through the pipeline. Physician burnout, addressing that. You know, what does that look like? So, you know, taking that into account, seeing patients by phone and, and, and uh, video conference, does that assist our patients? I mean, our physicians in, in, in their burnout rates? Um, making certain they have everything they need as well. Uh, and then we look at the public health emergency ending and the, uh, within you know, a couple of months from now. And you know, what is that gonna look like for those patients who no longer are insured? You know, the, the rush of uh, uninsured patients that could possibly come in through our doors. So just remaining agile, being able to have flexibility uh, to be able to hear what the patients need, hear from them, and actually do something with that information. So what does that look like? How do they choose to access us? Being proactive versus reactive, um, reaching out to our patients and ensuring continuity with those patients, not letting them fall through the cracks. So that's kind of what I see in terms of uh, primary care. Wow, I thank you for those insights. Um, and I love the point about, you know, it initially being more physician-centered back in the day, shifting to, you know, a patient-centered focus. And I was actually kind of blown away by the work at Affinia because I wasn't as knowledgeable. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, wow, I didn't know that there were organizations that specifically focused on primary care services um, and not just like a standalone, you know, physician's office or, or something like that. So it just started getting me to think kind of to piggyback on Brandon's question, you know, so we represent St. Louis, uh, all work in St. Louis. We know that there right. are, you know, some unfortunate, unprecedented, you know, inequities within St. Louis. So can you speak, you know, a little bit more about the inequity or the equity piece, I guess, you you know, that you see in, in um, primary care. So I'm just thinking, for example, when it comes to if we're looking at racial or ethnic categories, you know, I believe at least in the city of St. Louis and County, you know, black folks may be, you know, less likely to have a primary care physician, right, than their mm -hmm. counterparts. 
Um, so how do you kind of, you know, see Affinity addressing that, you know, filling those gaps and just from your perspective, um, if you had to speak on the inequities within the primary care space, what would some of those things look like? Well, speaking on the inequities with inequities within the primary care space, you mentioned, you know, not having uh, a primary care physician in place or uh, not having access. So, you know, here within our organization, our our biggest um, mission is to address the needs of those who are in vulnerable spaces. So those who are underrepresented, and we have a history of advocacy uh, within um, our, our city. Uh, so we're embedded in our communities and we have a foundation of trust and equity and we strive to be a safe and affirming healthcare space for anyone, along with providing quality patient focus, as I mentioned, affordable healthcare. So um, in order to provide equity and quality. Um, again, we talk about, you know, seeing those, you know, various uh, special uh, patient populations that we really want to focus in on. Um, another thing we really are looking at is um, maternal health. Um, you know, that's a, a huge thing right now. And about, you know, kind of extend postpartum depression, uh, things of that nature. Um, eliminating barriers in that space. So women's health, Medicaid expansion, maternal mental health. And again, one of the things that we are really uh, focusing on postpartum Medicaid coverage. I think that's in inequity. So um, the Missouri legislature is, um, hold on one second, gotta blow my nose. So, you know, we talked about how, <clears throat> um, you know, within Medicaid currently ends at within 60 days after birth. Okay, but it's been documented that women uh, pass away or have, you know, a lot of complications within that first year. And so what we're asking for is for Medicaid extension until, you know, one year. Um, lots of different reasons why they have complications. Of course, we talk about you know, postpartum depression, but it could be, you know, hypertension, heart conditions, anything, you know, childbirth is very hard on a woman as far as their bodies are concerned. So not having coverage um, after that 60 day period is I mean, it's tremendous. And it, it is an inequity, right? Um, because if you don't have coverage and you don't qualify from that point to have coverage, how are you able to see a physician for anything that you need from day 61 on up? And that's how women, you know, fall through the cracks with these complications and sometimes death. So, um, you know, having this, this extension is, uh, has a tremendous potential to save lives and make a, a meaningful difference in not only to the mothers, but to their families. Because when, you know, children are losing their mothers, especially newborn babies, you know, it's just, I mean, it's a hardship, right? So, you know, being able to have that additional coverage for full Medicaid benefits up into that year, um, and that coverage can includes, you know, dental. Let me tell you, here at Affinia, our dental team, they are working. And the thing is that I learned, I think you know, sometimes we take these things for granted. 
you know, dental care is not a, a luxury. It's not. Um, so to be able to go into the dentist and get work taken care of or even a cleaning, that's not something that should be an option. Like you need to have it, even, you know, from a child up, you need to have dental care. It impacts so many different things, heart, you know, even preterm birth. Yes, having that coverage is essential. So um, in behavioral health, vision, you know, just to be able to go and see your doctor within that time frame. So that when I think about inequity, I think about that and I think about those women who may not have coverage anymore. They had it throughout their pregnancy. They have it two months after their child is born and then they're cut off. Right. So, um, you know, that's something that uh, we are really, really uh, pushing for uh, within those who can um, advocate on a higher level. You know, it's those who have the uh, responsibility to make these changes and they don't even work in this space. You know, that's a hard thing. So we go through um, what we need to, to go to Jeff City and, and talk to those and advocate and, you know, make our voices heard. Uh, to those who make those decisions, who impact us and impact our patient populations. Wow. Um, so number one, I appreciate you. Uh, just, you know, I think it, being a COO, I think so many times, you know, from what we've heard, the people we've interviewed, obviously so much is focused on the operations and the business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, you know, I just had to give you your kudos for being able to just obviously speak to the things that would get our, our listeners um, really energized. And it really sounds like from the primary care vantage point, you it actually gives you the ability to be a little bit more holistic with yes. the, the patient population that you're serving. Because I'm just that thinking like, I don't know if I would hear this from someone who works at a large hospital where it's inpatient focused right. and so many things are crazy. And so it is, it, and, and we talked about this a little bit, do you see primary care being the, the primary space, you know, for patients and people to seek services going forward? Um, and is, is, it, is it okay? And is a, is a finia and the kind of focus it has, is this common or is this less common across you know, the country, if you, if you know? I think you probably can, we have the luxury of being able to do so much because we are a fairly qualified health center and we are, um, boots to the ground and closer to the community embedded, if you will, within the community and we see firsthand. That's a, a plus for me, to be able to see firsthand where the need lies. I think that larger health systems, they see it as well, but I think that you have to go through a little more in order to be able to trickle down into those areas. But the use of you know, doulas, as um, you stated before, community health workers, the use of those particular roles can allow you to have that access within the primary care space. So you may not be able to talk about your social determinants with your physician, but they know that if you're having food issues or that you're having transportation issues, they can refer you to someone within the office, a community health worker, for instance, and you can address those needs with them at a later time, not within your 15 minutes, of course, but if you need two hours to be able to work through resources that are available within your community through that person, I think that that is, you have that ability then. 
I think you're exactly right. I mean, once you start to understand the community you serve, you can make more of an impact there, right? There, and, there you go. Yes, there you ma'am. Go. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. And 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 for me, what one of the things that's kind of you know just resonating with me, honestly, is the fact that you know um, you recognize that, especially in a place like St. Louis, where there are so many um, issues kind of exacerbated in those marginalized communities. Mm-hmm. Um, that there is a need for uh, a place like Affinia, uh, where where they can come in and those 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 specialized communities that you those specialized populations that you were talking about they can get the yeah. help. Um, and all too many times, I think you know, um, us as administrators, uh, we're, we're kind of left to to use what's at our disposal. But a lot of this stuff is at a policy level. So I thank you for kind of you know pointing that out as well. Absolutely, um, yeah. My, my my last question or last request, I guess you could say, would be um, okay. if you have any maybe success stories or, or strategies of, of, of focus moving forward that maybe will will address some of those barriers or, or kind of attack some of those um, um, issues, you know, affecting those those communities that we talked about. Um, well, like I said, you know, just kind of, um, you know, looking into the policies that impact our communities and how we can advocate for change. Um, writing letters, uh, making your voice heard. Uh, that is the way to do so. You know, just uh, it may not impact you personally, uh, but within the healthcare space, you see where the need lies and just kind of research, you know, what those areas are. Again, like with the uh, Medicaid expansion, you know, this was not something that um, I had a, a view of previously. But here within this current space, I see it, uh, and, and and I can empathize. You know, just to think as a mother that I don't have coverage, and to know that you know I may not have, you know, any complications within those first two months, but then on the third month I have postpartum depression. Then what? What am I supposed to do? So, um, you know, again, just kind of just here listening and, and seeing where the need lies and being within uh, the environment and, you know, just making your voice heard and being an advocate. I love, I love that piece, the advocacy piece. I think it's something mm-hmm. that if you don't have your your eye on the policy and what's moving the needle, really That's you right. can actually become quite detached um, there from you go. Your, your job, uh, to be mm-hmm. completely honest. Yeah. And Keisha, I have to say, your balance as a leader comes through every single response you've given us to be completely oh, honest okay. i wanted to i wanted to ask you know about work-life balance i'm like she's got it clearly <laughs> you know as a as, as a mother and as a leader as yeah. someone who's in the community that's really around and so mm-hmm. i think that you know generally or genuinely excuse me you are an inspiration and Thank so you. what is uh, just what's what are some pieces of advice that you would know give to to folks like brandon or myself or even folks that are really just getting started you know or what is the one thing that you would have said to you know young Takesha when she was just getting her, her <laughs> within healthcare? <laughs> I would have said to young Takesha it is it is okay to be your authentic self mm. okay there is a place and a space for you as yourself you don't have to fit the mold of someone else and I think things have changed a lot over the years um, because I've realized that when you walk into a room, you are bringing value to it. So know that, know that you are bringing value to any room that you enter 
and that you know whatever uh, space I leave, I hope I leave it in a better place. So, uh, and that means being your own authentic self, knowing who you are, knowing what you are worth in every way, including financial. Yes. And uh, what you will and won't compromise on, because if you know who you are and you know your standards and, you know, you don't, you don't have to compromise on anything. Things will come to you. People will, you know, as I mentioned, it's, it's kind, of, kind of cliche, I think, but people will mention your name in rooms that you are not in. And I've seen it happen and I've done it myself. Because <laughs> because you want to, you know, when you leave an impression, a real true genuine impression on people, um, you know, what comes from the heart, you know, it reaches the heart. And I think that um, you can be yourself in every situation and know that you can excel and you can um, expand in your career, just being exactly who you are. So your unique gifts uh, will allow you to bloom where you are planted uh, and you will be able to fulfill your purpose. And that's only yours, that's you individually. Nobody else can give that to you. Just like I mentioned previously, you know, you can look at someone in a role and you try to emulate that, but you can't get to that same place that they did, you know, in that same way. They had to forge their own path and you got to forge yours. So do it with your own personal gifts, the gifts that were given to you. So that's what I would say to myself. And that's what I would say to anyone who is aspiring, um, not only within healthcare, but I think just in general, that's what I, I give to my daughter. She's in college. And that's why I tell her to, you know, she has locks, yes, nose ring. I'm like, yes, you can do whatever you're trying to do, just how you are. Do it. Because before, when I was growing up, you had to be a certain way. You got to wear the black or the blue suit. You have to wear your hair back, you know. And again, with the military thing, too, very structured, very, everybody's the same. But everybody's not the same. And every path isn't the same. Yeah. So, you know, I would never... Uh, foresee myself then being at this place now, being who I am, Takesha, when you see my name on a resume, you know what you're going to get, right? You don't know who I am, right? But when you see me, you know, you know, you're going to get a black woman, right? Mm. So understand that uh, I can walk into a room and I can add value and I know what I'm talking about and I'm leaving it better than I, you know, walked into it. Wow. Amen. Mic drop. Mic drop. That was excellent. Well, Takesha, we, you know, we um we are at time. This has been okay. a fantastic, fantastic interview. So thank you so much for That's giving, you know, you us some of your time and insight and just experience. Um, if our listeners wanted to connect with you or follow your journey in any way, is there any place that they may be able to find you on social media or anything like that? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'm on uh, LinkedIn. So um, just look my name up. I'm right there on LinkedIn. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Takesha. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I had a great time. So great time. Well, that's it for the episode. And we want to thank you for listening to the Healthcare Hustle podcast. Make sure to check us out each month on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And stay up to date with the Healthcare Hustle fam by following our page on LinkedIn. The marathon continues, so keep on hustling.